0: Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Adventure Science Podcast. Today, I've got the privilege of interviewing a friend and fellow member of the Explorers Club, Susan Eaton. Susan and I met way back in Calgary, where we were both working in the oil and gas industry at the time, but had this deep-seated love of exploration. And Susan's best known for her snorkeling and previously scuba diving activities, where She's not a fan of going where the rest of the tourists do and and wearing bathing suits when she uh, uh, snorkels. She likes to go to the extremes and her extremes have been the polar regions. And for the last uh, several years, she's been running uh, expeditions uh, in the Canadian Arctic uh, through the Zedna epic expeditionary program and has done some incredible things with that. So without further ado, we're going to jump right into it. Susan, thanks for joining us and uh, welcome to the podcast. Good to be chatting again.
1: Thank you very much, Simon. It's a pleasure to speak with you this morning.
0: Yeah, it, it was a mouthful for me spitting out the, the scuba and snorkeling uh, stories because it's, it's really interesting to me how you actually uh, got into snorkeling and you know, really made it cool uh, from being a scuba diver. I mean, I, you'd been into scuba for so many years. Do you want to talk about that and how that transition happened uh, for you?
1: Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I was a scuba diver my entire life. I, I taught scuba diving, in fact, and uh, it was my life. I grew up in, in Nova Scotia on the Atlantic Ocean, so I was used to cold water scuba diving. And my travels in, in scuba took me to leading expeditions to Cocos Island, uh, diving on the Pacific and northwest coast of Canada, and uh, through tropical waters as well. But I, I seem to love the cold water uh, diving because the the flora and fauna under, underwater is simply magnificent. Uh, so I had a great dive career. I had a great run. But 12 years ago, I ended up in a hyperbaric chamber. And if you're a diver, you know you never want to spend three days in a chamber, which is what happened to me. Uh, at the end of the, the treatment, I, I returned to Calgary, and it was determined that I had had an arterial gas Uh, embolism at a very serious uh, incident um, I call it an incident it wasn't an accident Uh, I had three very safe dive profiles the day it happened but the bottom line is that uh, an echocardiogram discovered uh, that I have small perforations in the septum between the venous and arterial chambers of my heart and that enabled gas to push through uh, into my arterial system and cause the embolism Um, because the physicians in Calgary didn't want to patch the holes uh, my dive career was over suddenly and and, and tragically. Uh, after about a, a year feeling sorry for myself, I, I heard that you could snorkel with belugas in Churchill. And uh, so I went to Hudson Bay and I snorkeled with belugas and wrote a, a piece for the Calgary Herald. And then I heard you could snorkel with million salmon in the Campbell River on Vancouver Island. So, of course, I visited uh, Campbell River and was mesmerized by the hundreds of thousands of salmon fighting their way up the river while I was snorkeling on by. And uh, they would part like a curtain in front of me because wearing a black uh, wetsuit, I looked like a seal and seals eat salmon. So it was really quite fantastical. And then I I started calling myself an extreme snorkeler because if you're a washed up scuba diver and dive instructor, what do you do? Uh, Extreme snorkeler. And and then that took me to the polar regions. I went further afield. I went up to uh, the northern tip of Baffin Island to snorkel with narwhals. And then finally to Antarctica to, to snorkel with 1400 pound leopard seals and to watch penguins underwater, uh, you know, s- sort of swoosh by like bullets. I mean, they're very ungainly on shore, but underwater they are, they are swimming machines. So I, I started uh, really enjoying the snorkel zone and, and that's the five meters in the upper water column where the the, the land, the sea, the water and the ice all meet. And if you want to hang out with charismatic megafauna like leopard seals and narwhals and belugas and humpbacks, uh, sea turtles, even any animal that breathes air, you need to hang out in the snorkel zone because that's where the magic happens. So that's how I became a snorkeler, whether I, I call myself a polar snorkeler, an extreme snorkeler or just a snorkeler, because snorkeling is something that anyone can do if you're a reasonable swimmer.
0: Interesting. And, you know, the snorkel zone, the, the term, uh, I hadn't heard it before I met you. Did you coin that term?
1: Well, I, I don't know if I coined it, but I certainly use it all the time. And, and in fact, I, I talk about, um, you know, moving into the snorkel zone, transitioning into the snorkel zone, because when you're a scuba diver, you don't even care about the snorkel zone. You jump off a boat or, and you, you, you deflate the air in your suit or your uh, buoyancy compensator. And you try to get to depth as quickly as possible while uh, you know, um, equalizing your ears. And you don't even notice that you've gone through five meters of the most exciting part of the water column because you're focused on getting deep. Uh, so yeah, my transition into the snorkel zone has been a life-changing um, transition. And I have to say that I'm having more fun in the snorkel zone than I ever did during my years of diving. And that really my frame of reference with the ocean and exploring the ocean has changed. And I've fallen in love with the ocean all over again in the snorkel zone.
0: Well, that's fascinating. And and what I love about that is, you know, you you had said after a year of feeling sorry for yourself, um, you know, you kind of set out maybe inadvertently at that time. But on a path of rediscovery, you obviously love being in the water but you didn't give up on that and just say okay well because i've got this uh, issue i can't get in the water anymore you looked for an alternative and you know i have to say as 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 an athlete and adventurer who likes to really push uh himself in fairly extreme environments you know for me that would be like going from running to having to walk and there would be a massive uh Kind of cognitive readjustment for me where you know it's like okay am I still an athlete am I still macho do I what's happening to my ego it's it's not something easy to deal with when a big part of you is suddenly forced to change or perhaps taken away um, you know what, what are your thoughts about that
1: well absolutely it doesn't matter what your passion was if suddenly your passion uh, is taken from you and it was a big part of how you defined yourself, uh, you're really at a crossroads. It could be a career changed similarly you could end up being laid off in the oil and gas industry suddenly you're no longer a geologist and you maybe you become a writer or you become a videographer which is a what a lot of my friends in calgary have have morphed into different careers here as the the industry has slowed down here in alberta and it's exciting to see that people have more than one career in their lives or people have more than one activity or sport in their lives that they can excel at um it was just something that happened organically and, uh, and I, I write for newspapers and magazines and I've been writing about exploring the planet in the snorkel zone and, and what I, I, I enjoy about the snorkel zone is that everyone can do it and my analogy is cross-country skiing is to downhill skiing what snorkeling is to scuba diving. When you're cross-country no, skiing no. or snorkeling, your footprint on the planet is very low. Uh, You're moving through the ecosystem very quietly. And you tend to have more encounters with wildlife because you are so quiet and your footprint is so low. And three generations of a family can enjoy snorkeling or cross-country skiing. But when we jump to downhill skiing and scuba diving, the price point just got really expensive and multi-generations are unlikely to do that activity together. And uh, the environmental footprint of uh, skiing at a downhill ski resort and or being on a big dive boat is pretty high. And so it's, it's fairly elitist to be able to go downhill skiing and or um, on a big dive boat. But, you know, the average family can afford to go cross-country skiing and or snorkeling. So I think snorkeling is, is an activity for the masses in the ocean uh, that really uh, introduces them to the ocean ecosystem.
0: I like that. That's a, that's a fantastic analogy. Um, Okay, so we've talked about, you know, your passion for for life in the water. Well, let's talk about your passion uh, for science. Well, we'll take a little bit of a step back and you grew up in the Maritimes and you were always around water. And I mean, I know you well, and I I know your your academic past and uh, some of the twists and turns that it's taken uh, you on before it took you to the oil and gas industry. But I mean, you're a geophysicist, you're a geologist and you do have a a background in journalism as well so let's talk about that and and the interplay because it's led to uh some of the writing that you do now and you know from my perspective it's really led to you creating the uh the whole sedna epic
1: yes indeed um well i grew up in halifax and my mother was a marine biologist with department of fisheries and oceans in canada and she was a marine mammal expert And so obviously, as a a child in high school, I got to go on field trips with my mother, uh, take a week off high school and go on cool trips studying whales uh, in the North Atlantic. Uh, So when I went to university, I I assumed I'd be a marine biologist, which is why at age 16, I certified as a scuba diver. Uh, In the end, my mother kept dissuading me from doing it. She said, you know, there's no jobs, even with a PhD, you won't get a, a job. And, uh, but when you're 18, you don't believe your mother. So I, um, I went into marine biology and oceanography at Dalhousie University, and it was absolutely shocked to see how many students there were in first and second year. And I thought, maybe my mother is right. Uh, so I ended up combining my degree in marine biology with uh, geology. And that led to moving to Western Canada to work as a geologist in oil gas. Uh, so I never left the bio- marine biology behind because I enjoyed exploring the oceans as a scuba diver. Uh, So, after working as a geologist and a geophysicist for a number of years, I went back to university and did a journalism degree because I wanted to report on science. And uh, there are very few reporters or journalists who have a science background. And when I was auditioning for my journalism uh, spot in the degree, I said, I I think I can identify stories that are newsworthy uh, because I'm a scientist. And I believe that I can get into the story uh, perhaps better than journalists that don't have a science background because of my fa- my geology and geophysics and marine biology uh, education. So that yeah. led to a continuum, yeah. You know, so writing about science, doing science, And I I continue to work as a scientist, so in some cases it's led to some out-of-body experiences where I write an article about something and then I live that story eventually because I'm usually writing about things that I find fascinating and whether Mm -hmm. it's a a new technology that uh, a company's developed in the oil and gas sector that I, I end up using, Or a story about someone doing something really cool in the oceans then I end up uh, exploring the oceans in that way or in that place Um, I've had these out-of-body experiences because it's a continuum that just flows and so scientists journalists uh, conservationists um, humanists uh, it all goes together in one continuum
0: yeah well I mean it's it's amazing how you know you can't see it when you're 18 right None of us can predict the future. We all think we know what's what uh, and what's best for us at that time. Sometimes uh, mother does know best, though. But, you know, it's so many of the guests that uh, I have on the show, many of them didn't start out in what they're currently doing. And the, the common thread, though, is that they had the passion for what they're currently doing as children or teens. But, you know, that wasn't career worthy or, you know, who's your mentor to guide you into that path? You kind of have to stumble upon it yourself, maybe after you've made some money and you're able to afford it on your own or uh, you meet uh, the right people. I mean, for you, I don't know if joining the Explorers Club uh, has opened some doors or uh, helped with some connections. But, uh, you know, for me, it's just expanded my world and um, let me see beyond Uh, the boundaries that I thought existed for the world of exploration and you know to be frank uh you know I was always the 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 weirdo uh, amongst my friends right I I was friends with athletes but I wasn't friends with explorers so you know through the explorers club it was nice to know that you're not alone and there's more of more of you or us out there and then at that point boom the brain just opens up and it just starts absorbing everything
1: Well, that's so true. You know, when I announced the Sedna Epic Expedition, uh, I did so in the fall of uh, 2013 at the Explorers Club meeting on Salt Spring Island. uh, And I got a standing ovation from the people in the uh, audience because I said, I'm going to snorkel the Northwest Passage uh, for climate change. And uh, when I I got the standing ovation, I thought, I think I finally met the right people who don't think I'm crazy. (laughs) Uh, Because you tell other people that you're going to do that and they look at you thinking, hmm, that's interesting. Uh, But I I think uh, people who dream big and then who actually turn those dreams into realities are the types of people that I've been hanging out with lately. And people who always say, yeah, I think we can do it, but we just have to figure out how, as opposed to people who say, I can't do it, you know?
0: Yeah. And it's funny how uh, as life goes on and, you know, we come a little bit more entrenched in a particular path, such as uh, exploration and, and, you know, kind of uh, stuff that just hasn't been done before, not necessarily first, but in the way that we want to do it. It's just an exercise in problem solving. And I think that's where science also comes back into the picture. Uh, Business background, scientific background, where you've got to solve problems on a daily basis, Uh, you know, it really uh, plays an important role when you're planning difficult expeditions.
1: Indeed, and also uh, the ability to fundraise for these expeditions, too. Uh, oh, if right. you come with a business background and, and uh, understanding, uh, working with partners and or clients, it's generally about them and not you. Uh, so trying to figure out what, why a company would support Sponsor a partner with an expedition or an individual is 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 something that you learn through a career in business no matter what what you're doing for a living. So I think the, uh, the Sort of the combination of of being employed in, in, in a profession where I ran large budgets and logistical budgets to people in the field equipment in the field and also dealt with partners and worked in teams uh, Always in teams Uh, was really good training for running an expedition, which is, it really uh, can only be successful if there's a coherent team and everyone is pulling in the same direction with the same goal, the same vision and the same mission. Everyone has to know where they're going to be able to travel together on that journey.
0: Yeah, very well put. Well, let's talk about the uh, Epic expedition. Uh, Like you said, you started in 2003. I remember uh, we had some early discussions um, as you were getting up and running, and yes, the initial goal was um, a snorkel the Northwest Passage. Now that's changed over the past few seasons that you've been up there and, and the work that you've done. Uh, and I should also add that you know this is a female-driven initiative, which I think is is fantastic. And you know, I'd love to hear uh, you know the history, how that's changed, and you know what what you've learned through the process, and and where you see uh, Sedna going.
1: Yes, absolutely. Well, it actually uh, was launched in 2013 at the Explorers Club on Salt Spring Island. But the, the kernel for the uh, idea of the expedition, the, the Eureka moment, I guess, everyone talks about these Eureka moments that it was very clear at that point that they're going to do something, was uh, in the fall of 2010 when a very small sailboat had uh, navigated the Northwest Passage in one season. And I was listening to uh, a CBC radio report about how remarkable it was that the sailboat went through in one season. And of course, it was because of disappearing sea ice in the Arctic. And I was uh, cogitating over this and thinking, uh, okay, well, it's remarkable, but it's been done before. People have sailed through the Northwest Passage. And it's no longer a first. But as I was thinking, and now my frame of reference is snorkeling, of course. I thought, wouldn't it be uh, an elegant metaphor for disappearing sea ice if you could swim the Northwest Passage? Because if you could swim the Northwest Passage or snorkel it, um, it would uh, definitely prove to the world that, uh, you know, we've got problems in the Arctic related to climate change and ocean change, and a swimmer or a group of women swimming in the snorkel zone could get through in one season. So that was how the whole thing started. In the fall of 2013, I took three years of of talking to people about equipment, how would we do it, uh, you know, what type of boats would we use, and uh, reached out to my uh, contacts in the scuba diving community and uh, started uh, assembling a team of like-minded women, and I determined that the project would be women only because the Inuit uh, communities are matriarchal in their makeup. And uh, we wanted to work in communities along route uh, along the the Northwest snorkel relay route, And um, so I started pulling together a team of very impressive and experienced female explorers, uh, divers, snorkelers, and explorers who were were other types of explorers, mountaineers, and long-distance hikers. Uh, We had teachers and um, movie makers and photographers and investment bankers, which are very important when you're running an expedition. So I started recruiting Team Sedna, and uh, that's how it all started, uh, Simon. And um, after spending quite a bit of time in Antarctica, snorkeling and diving and on climate change expeditions where we're studying ocean change, and spending um, not as much time in the Arctic, but I was struck more by the Arctic, the Canadian Arctic, because uh, we had real people experiencing climate change in real time, as opposed to Antarctica, which is a continent with no indigenous people, and the only residents of Antarctica temporary, and they're usually scientists who are working in science bases. Uh, so I decided to focus my my time and energy and money on working in the Canadian Arctic on ocean change and climate change, and um, at the same time uh, trying to understand it from the Inuit perspective. And that's how Sedna was born. It's women only because the indigenous society is matriarchal and uh, we aim to work with women and girls in communities, as well as as the snorkeling, as well as the science. So that's the genesis of Sedna.
0: Well, I mean, uh, you raise a lot of important points there. uh, Everything from, you know something that resonates with the area you're going into, uh, such as the matriarchal uh, community structure, uh, the importance of building a team uh, that that's going to pull in the right direction. It's got um, experience, it's got credibility, frankly. And you know the other side of it is is the fundraising. So you've done, and correct me if I'm wrong, three expeditions to date.
1: We have. We just completed a third expedition, at the end of August uh, 2018.
0: So, I mean, I'd love to learn a little bit about the logistical process and uh, some of the uh, massive hurdles you've had to clear. I remember some of the, the early day stories about finding boat captains in New York City while, you know, you're at the, uh, the Explorers Club annual dinner and you've got to zip out and meet with a boat captain. And, you know, it all sounds uh, <laughs> like we're, we're in the 1700s and you're getting ready to sail to, uh, to the new world kind of thing. But, uh, you know, it's, it's not an easy uh, undertaking and it requires uh, one the commitment uh, to the knowledge and three the financing so I'd love to learn a little bit more about some of the hurdles you had to clear in those respects and then how the expeditions
1: absolutely you know a hundred years ago and today the single biggest hurdle for mounting a polar expedition is money so I often feel like Sir Ernest Shackleton in fact, if if I had a chance to sit down with uh, Robert Scott or Ernest Shackleton, it'd definitely be Shackleton for whiskey, because I I, I feel like uh, I I'm the female embodiment of Shackleton sometimes because he was quite he was uh, off he was always looking for money and he was quite the operator in terms of getting that money and and you have to be very creative uh, and both you know Roald Amundsen and Ernest Shackleton they both left port without paying their bills and without uh, having raised sufficient funds to actually mount their expeditions whether it was through the Northwest Passage with Amundsen or Shackleton's uh, 1914 to 1917 expedition, the Imperial Transantarctic Expedition. So it's incredibly difficult. And, uh, you know, it ha- you have to have a great business plan to begin with, and if you're going to attract uh, corporate sponsors, both uh, with cash and uh, services in kind and equipment and so on, it's it the business proposal has to to definitely show the partners what's in it for them, and you have to deliver. Uh, but at the same time, we've uh, had uh, amazing support from the scuba diving industry in terms of equipment and uh, support and education with organizations like uh, PADI, uh, the Professional Association of Diving Instructors, and in NAWI, another uh, dive certification agency. And the interesting thing uh, is that the future of the scuba diving industry is women by sheer numbers. That in, in the Western world, more than 50% of all the new divers are women. And globally patty's uh a recent patty study it's a few years old now showed that 35 percent of all the new divers in in the world are women so uh the dive industry is very keen on having women role models uh doing cool things and wearing their equipment and testing it out in in cold climates because we're actually testing a lot of this gear in polar mm-hmm. ice and in extreme environments that um, the dive companies simply can't afford to, to do themselves. So we are the guinea pigs in some cases for brand new dry suits with electrically heated undergarments. And uh, Ooh, we're yep. testing right. out new equipment to see if it'll handle minus 1.8 degrees Celsius waters, which is the temperature which salt water freezes. And mm-hmm. um, it's it's been really quite interesting. So I, I do feel that nothing has changed in a hundred years. It's still the biggest Part of the expedition is the fundraising and the equipment um, assembly. Uh, Then logistically to get to the north, uh, it's extremely expensive. You know, a a two-way ticket from Calgary to Pond Inlet might cost me $7,000 Canadian. Uh, So we have to get creative and we have to talk to the airlines and we need to um, use frequent flyer points when necessary. And all of the women are self-funded, by the way, with the exception of our Inuit partners and team members, but the women are self-funded. And so they have to go out and raise their pro rata share of their expedition costs. And then I'm raising funds for other things like uh, documentary, documentarians and uh, equipment and flying equipment to the Arctic at $4 US per kilo, uh, things like that. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a massive undertaking. I would, I would estimate that we've raised $2 million uh, since 2013, Canadian, uh, for three expeditions. And and that is we, the collective we, is uh, the women in the teams,
0: mm-hmm. our
1: partners, our sponsors, uh, donors, philanthropists. And we've actually taken to social media and crowdsourcing to assist us, which is something that Ernest Shackleton didn't have 100 years ago. And uh, this year, uh, the team, several, well, probably about eight to nine team members raised $150,000 on social media on GoFundMe platforms to help with their their share of uh, going to the Arctic. And in, in 2016, a group of eight of us raised a hundred thousand dollars, so we're getting better at it, and we have a great story to tell It's not simply an expedition to go snorkel and dive in the north in the Arctic or in the Northwest Passage. It's an expedition with a purpose uh, to, to to study scout document climate change and ocean change in the Arctic and to work in Inuit communities uh, with girls and boys and deliver our ocean knowledge uh, program in those communities so the Sedna is bigger than the women, and uh, to date, over three expeditions, more than se- 65 people have participated in Sedna, and we've reached uh, thousands of Inuit youth parents and elders in Nain, Labrador, Ikaluit in Nunavut, Pond Inlet in Nunavut, and Sizimut in Western Greenland, where we've been on the ground in communities with our aquariums, uh, which h- host temporarily uh, sea critters our underwater robot building workshops for kids and the snorkel safaris that we run for girls as part of our ocean mentorship program for girls ages 16 to 24 in the north. It's been an epic undertaking, which is why Epic is part of the name of Sedna. It's epic <laughs> in fundraising proportions. It's epic in what we're attempting to do. And really no one has done this before in Nunavut. We're the first group that's actually been offering this integrated ocean knowledge sharing and mobilization program for Inuit youth. And I've, I've coined the term ocean knowledge sharing and mobilization project because it's not an ocean education outreach project because that that assumes that we in the South know more about the Arctic Ocean than the Inuit do in the North. And that's simply not true, even though they don't swim, even though death by drowning is one of the the leading causes of mortality of inuit in the north they know a lot about their arctic in their indigenous uh, traditional cultural terms and and we're scientists from the south so it's actually a sharing program where we're learning probably more from them than they're learning from us and we're mobilizing knowledge and ideas and inspiration and showing the kids that there's careers in the ocean in in greenland and nunavut if they want to be in uh, a remotely operated uh, vehicle pilot. They want to be an underwater movie maker or photographer, perhaps a maritime archaeologist or a marine biologist or marine geologist. All of these people on our team, by the way, scientific diver. Uh, so we're, we're showing uh, the youth and the girls in particular through our mentorship program that there is a career in their own backyard, and it involves studying the ocean, which is changing dramatically, and that's important to the Inuit because their food comes from the ocean.
0: Right. Yeah. Well, that, that was uh, evident to me when we were up there, um, just traveling along, and we were on King William Island uh, near Joe Haven, traveling along the coast, visiting some of the camps, uh, you know, they're, they're catching fish, Netting fish, you know, pulling in a net with uh, fifty char. Um, there's seal bones everywhere, and you know, you're you're pulling those uh, from the ocean. So, yeah, al- although uh, they're not out there swimming, um, you know, they are they are around water every day, from what I saw.
1: Yes, and they're using the water as their transportation corridor in the winter when it's frozen uh, mm-hmm. to navigate uh, by snowmobile primarily, sometimes dog teams to go to their hunting grounds to hunt as well. You know, if they're going hunting for seal or other animals and the caribou are using, and the musk oxen are using the, the frozen sea ice uh, to move from their winter grounds to their summer grounds. So the sea ice is extremely important to all of the animals in the Arctic and the Inuit in particular who are hunting in fishing there. So it's absolutely important. And food sustainability in the north is one of the biggest uh, issues that um, the Inuit are facing up there because the cost of buying groceries in the grocery store is prohibitive for most Inuit. And that's really why they hunt and fish uh, as much as they can because they can't afford to buy a lot of the groceries in the grocery store. Not only that, it's the traditional way of life, and uh, they, they embrace that, and it's, it, um, it's important to them. And they're wearing clothing made from polar bear skins, from seal skins, and so on, and uh, they're using all of these animals. Uh, not only they're eating them, but they're, they're using the fur and, and many other parts of the animal for jewelry and other pieces of art that they're making, caribou antlers and so on are used uh, in sculpture as well so it's important and uh, that's why when Sedna comes to a community and and we come to a community with our Inuit team members which is the progression of of the project is that we've we've added Inuit team members young women who've come through our mentorship program and we have Inuit advisors who uh, can guide us can lead us in terms of developing an ocean curriculum that is both relevant and uh, culturally acceptable to Inuit youth, because coming from the South, we, 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 we're, not, uh, we're not completely in tune with the nuances of education for Indigenous youth, but, but with our Inuit team members and advisors, we're producing a, a program that resonates with these kids and their parents and their grandparents, and that's the really exciting thing. Two of our young Inuit women, ages 20 and 21 this summer, who were on the expedition, uh, became certified scuba divers before the expedition. And they got to dive in Dundas Harbor on Devon Island in the Northwest Passage for the first time in their territory. And it was quite remarkable for them to be under the ice, to see all the animals on the seafloor in Nunavut, when the majority of Inuit do not swim. And and they don't swim for many reasons, cultural one, but two, there's very few swimming pools in the communities in Nunavut, so it's difficult to learn how to swim, uh, given the climate and and the water temperature and the ice issues. But it's remarkable to see the transformation of these two young women, from the first presentation they saw Sedna in 2015 in the high school, to becoming part of the mentorship program for young women in 16, to becoming fully-fledged scuba divers and dry-suit divers in 18, and and uh, part of the team, and that's remarkable. And that's that's what Sedna is doing in communities with its its women's program, its mentorship program, is inspiring, empowering, and equipping the girls with the tools and the skills to work on societal change, climate change, and ocean change in their communities.
0: Well, that's that's all incredible. And it sounds like the mentorship program is uh, is a huge value add for what you uh, do with Sedna. Now. What have you guys done on the scientific front? Have you made um, any interesting uh, ads there? I know that uh, mapping is on the radar for the future. I, I'm not sure if you've done any yet. Um, yes. Uh, yeah.
1: Well, our team is made up of, of 50% scientists and 50% artists, which gives us a really great mix so that uh, the artists can describe in many different platforms what the scientists are doing. Mm-hmm. And um, we've done marine mammal and seabed seabird uh, surveys on on the boats when we're at sea and and the data is tabulated in a format that Environment Canada can integrate uh, into its database for the management of uh, the resources in the north. Uh, We have done um, some plastic trolling we haven't collected samples yet but we've tested some trolls that we've made uh to see how they would work off a boom off a zodiac because we'd like to study micro and macro plastics Uh, Mm -hmm. but we've tested the technology in frobisher bay we have also uh, done acoustic recordings in the ocean this summer past with uh, a team member Cynthia Matska from the Scripps Oceanographic Institution in San Diego Uh, We had uh, a a multi-directional hydrophone built for us by the Scripps Institute. And uh, she was recording soundscapes in the ocean, not only animals, but the sounds of glaciers calving uh, icebergs uh, off the coast of Greenland and uh, in northern uh, Nunavut in the Northwest Passage. And that's part of a a test project for a bigger um, acoustic study in the future, just putting a passive uh, hydrophone into the water and listening. Uh, to what's going on in the Arctic. And Mm -hmm. one of our craziest uh, science projects that we worked on uh, was to tag, uh, put satellite tags on Greenland sharks in Frobisher Bay. And uh, yeah, it was interesting. Uh, We, uh, a partner called Low Tech, uh, produces these uh, satellite tags in Ontario. And uh, we went to the Arctic with two $5,000 satellite tags to affix to Greenland sharks. Uh, that are the longest lived and, animal and on the planet. Are
0: you know, great white. Have,
1: well, Greenland sharks are, are the second largest shark after great white um, in length, but not in girth. And okay. uh, they're the longest lived animal in the ocean, up to 500 years. And so they're a really? great animal to study uh, the impacts of ocean change and climate change with. And very f- little is known about Greenland sharks, very few are caught. Uh, You know, they're caught inadvertently when people are fishing in the north, uh, but they're deep, deep water, cold water animals. They do come to the surface. They have been known to predate on uh, small whales like calves, narwhals, and belugas, or eat a dead carcass along the beach. Um, so we were looking for them and we put bait balls in Frobisher Bay and our Inuit advisor, Johnny Isalek, provided us with uh rancid, uh, walrus and whale meat to create a, a yummy bait ball for Greenland sharks. <laughs> and we put them in the ocean waiting for the sharks to come in. Um, we checked the bait balls, but to no avail, no eating, uh, we were hoping that we'd attract a swarm of Greenland sharks, and and they swim so slowly that a scuba diver can swim beside a Greenland shark and and jab the, uh, uh, the 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 satellite tag onto sort of its back, no problem. And those tags would have lasted for a couple of years had they worked. We would have gotten really cool data on where these sharks mm-hmm. go, how deep they go, when they're at the surface, because they're GPS, obviously, with uh, depth sensors, but. We get scouts by the Greenland sharks, uh, not for lack of trying. Uh, And the the other part of science that we're doing, which I I really believe is science, it's citizen science, and that is our aquarium program, which requires a permit from Department of Fisheries and Oceans to go out and acquire uh, small fishes and invertebrates uh, to bring them back and put them in the touch aquarium so the kids and their parents and grandparents can see these animals. Uh, the, The animals are hosted in aquariums for three to four hours maximum, and then they're returned or repatriated to where they came from. Um, so it's really interesting to see the animals in, in the Arctic, because as I said, you know, the Inuit aren't swimming and they're not normally snagging these fish when they're fishing. Although we did bring up a sculpin and, and that fish is known to the Inuit, but they, they don't have Inuktitut names for some of these animals even, which is very interesting. So that that is uh, citizen science and the kids are really learning about marine biology in the touch tank. We tend to put the predators on one side with a plastic uh, barrier between uh, the prey so that we don't have predators eating prey in front of children. But yeah, um, sure. I'm sure they would love that, however. Uh, but it was, um, it, it's been very successful in the communities where we run it in Iqaluit and in Nain Labrador. Um, and then our r- underwater robot program also I would describe as citizen science. And it's, it's, it's engaging youth and building underwater robots which are made up of PVC pipe and connectors and rotor blades and switch boxes. And the kids don't need much instruction. They need far less instruction than the adults on how to put them together. And they built, they design them, they build them, they put flotation on them. They fly them in the water. And if they don't fly, they bring them back and they reassemble them quickly. And these uh, underwater robots have cameras on them. So the children get to see what lives in the ocean uh, by flying the robots in the water. They get to see what lives in the ocean by the aquarium program. And then ultimately taking the girls snorkeling um, brings the ocean to eye level for Inuit uh, girls uh, and elders. We've taken an elder with us as well, snorkeling. And she was uh, a grandmother and simply mesmerized by what she could see in the ocean, which she's never been in before um, in her backyard. So, so that's the kind of science we're doing. Obviously, if we have a fully dedicated ship, what, what we want to add to that is we'd like to run side scan sonars um, to map the seafloor, looking for shipwrecks. We'd like to go into shallow bays and, with a side-scan sonar, uh, map the seafloor in shallow bays so that we can construct the climate history record of that area, which we can do with uh, side-scan sonar, LIDAR, and gravity and magnetic tools, uh, which we right. can deploy uh, off, the, uh, off the Zodiac. Or we can put that payload on our diver propulsion vehicle, which is a scooter, and the women can actually do a grid- uh, with a scooter that propels them through the water at about 68 kilometers and they can do it that way as well. So
0: Interesting.
1: yeah, it's all very exciting and uh, so We're doing a lot of different things and each each woman comes with a different science project that she's interested in and obviously as I mentioned pr- previously uh, Macro and microplastics are a big issue and we're really interested in, in in measuring that as well. And if we're in the water, we can actually measure the conductivity, salinity, and density of the water column also. So there's a multitude of things we can do. And uh, as we add different scientists to our project, they come with different uh, uh, interests in, in, in research. So it, it's fluid, it's very fluid. And uh, But the citizen science part of it in the communities, I think is one of the most important accomplishments that we've, uh,
0: we've achieved to date. Well, that's incredible. Um, You know, I'd like to learn a little bit more about, you know, we talked about it offline quickly, but it was, um, you know, how females explore versus how males explore and a little bit of the dichotomy between the two. What have your experiences been through uh, through Sedna uh, with gaining a greater understanding of some of the differences and, you know, some of the positive attributes that uh, female-led exploration leads to?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, to start with, there's not many female-led expeditions in the world. uh, And there's certainly not uh, many large scuba diving female-led expeditions in the world that I know of. And I'm in the mix. Mm. Uh, Then we go to polar uh, diving and even fewer women. So to begin with, the women are in the minority in the exploration field, just like they happen to be in the minority in... In, in some of the scientific fields uh, in the world and at, in academic institutions. So I, we started out by making this an all-female team because of the matriarchal um, uh, makeup of the Inuit communities. And, 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 and that was the initial reason. But as, I, as we progress through Sedna, what I'm finding is that uh, having an all-female team of, of A-type women, uh, very successful women, it has been really exciting. And in fact, I've had to change or modify my management style because I come from an all-male career, male-dominated career, oil and gas, earth scientist. And and prior to that, I was a lieutenant in the infantry in Canada's army, Uh, all male-dominated. And to survive as a leader, to thrive and to survive and to become a leader, I have to adopt that strategy of management style. And now I'm leading a team of women. And it's very different my management style has evolved and uh it, it's been really exciting for me to be able to change and to adapt my management style and and i think the reason it's evolved is because women interact differently with each other in terms of communications and women explorers explore the planet differently and i've, I've determined after running three expeditions of women and we've had the odd man in the team, you know, a dive master. We've got a male Inuit advisor, a scuba diver as well. Um, but predominantly women run expeditions, women-led expeditions. Um, I've determined that women explore the planet differently. And they seek to understand a place through its people, through the inhabitants. They seek to understand a place through its history. And also... The history of the people and how they use the landscape and the resources. And despite uh, the old-fashioned sort of pedagogy of exploration, which is like a first to the moon, a first to the Mariana Trench, a first up Everest and so on, uh, women, I think, are broader uh, thinkers and they really do want to understand. And, and in the North, Uh, When we're working in Inuit communities, we do want to understand the makeup of these communities and how they use the ocean resources and how our knowledge base can assist when invited to do so in in outreach, education, mentorship of youth. Um, So, you know, for example, we have a woman in our team is the first woman, Canadian woman, to climb the highest mountain on seven continents. She is impressive. But... The thing she loves the most about the Sedna Epic Expedition, and she's been on too, is getting down on her knees, on a tarp, on a beach and helping kids build robots and then taking them to the water and helping them fly the robots. We have uh, amazing explorers who are fellows of the Explorers Club, uh, fellows of the Royal Canadian Geographical Society who say the most meaningful part of the expedition for them has not been the scuba diving, it's not been the exploration or maybe some of the science. It's been taking the young Inuit girls snorkeling for the first time, holding their hands for the first five minutes. And then the girls say, I got it. Leave me alone. Uh, I want to do my own thing because the girls are pretty competent, even though they're not, say, strong swimmers, but they're in dry suits. And, and it's their it's their environment, even though it's a new way of experiencing it. So these women who are capable uh, explorers and you know, we have a five-time Emmy award-winning movie maker in our team. They all say to me that, you know, in the order of things, that are the most rewarding it's it's working with Inuit youth and understanding the communities, meeting their mothers, working with women's groups, and uh, that part of the expedition is fulfilling to them. And that what is what keeps them going to fundraise every expedition to raise twenty grand roughly to go on the expedition. They like doing the science next. They love the science. The Greenland shark project was a lot of fun. It's just unfortunate we didn't see any Greenland sharks. Um, And and whether we snorkel the Northwest Passage, all 3,000 kilometers of it or not, the women are telling me that's not the most important part of the expedition for them. And that to me is really interesting because I started out saying, I'm going to snorkel the Northwest Passage for climate change. And I got the standing ovation at the Explorers Club, rah-rah, well this is the new uh, Amundsen, uh, you know, this new way to explore the Northwest Passage, we're going to be in the water and we're going to see it the way no one else has ever seen it before. And And that's a very old-fashioned construct, to be the first to do something, an old-fashioned exploration construct that Explorers are the first to do something, and uh, the first to achieve something. And and we may snorkel parts of the Northwest Passage, but it probably won't be the entire length because of ice, because of tides, because of how expensive a boat is on a day basis. Uh, But we're definitely going to do science uh, because we have a hotshot team of ocean scientists with us. We're going to document it uh, photographically and videographically. We're going to make a film about it. But I think our focus is going to be on engaging the Inuit youth to be part of that program. So we need to fundraise to get more Inuit participation in our project. And we want the young Inuit people doing the document. We want them doing the science. We want to show them how to do the science. So I I think that uh, our legacy in the Arctic is going to be um, engaging Inuit youth and focusing on mentorship of girls as well at the same time. We don't ignore the boys. Uh, And doing science, but doing it in, in a really collaborative way, such that. We leave skill set. We develop skill sets in the communities, and some of these activities can t- can continue, uh, and/or we inspire these young people to go to university, become that maritime archaeologist or marine geologist. So I think that's really what the women are telling me is that um, that's the most important part of Sedna for them. So as a leader, I need to listen to my team. I need to to incorporate their feedback and create uh, the next exhibition, 2020, is obviously going to contain a lot of uh, uh, outreach and uh, ocean education, knowledge, mobilization. It's going to contain science and it's going to contain snorkel relays, uh, but it may not be the entire length of the Northwest Passage. And and that's the evolution uh, over three expeditions. You know, the concept, the Eureka Moment 2010, uh, the launch in 2013, the first expedition in 14 to Labrador and West Greenland on a vessel fully contained. Next expedition in Frobisher Bay in 2016, uh, land-based but with three boats uh, for dive support. And then in 2018, we were in northern, uh, Nuna- northern Baffin Island and the Northwest Passage in Nunavut and western Greenland on a bigger vessel. We were an expedition within an expedition. There were other guests on board the ship. We've done three different uh, sort of uh, sort of we've we've tried it three different ways, and uh, we've, we've come to the realization that uh, the most important thing we can do is is inspire and empower you youth. To become ocean advocates and ocean scientists and ocean documentarians.
0: Well, the louder uh, voice they have, the better off uh, Canada's North and other polar regions will will certainly be because they are the stewards since they live there. Um, okay, so we are almost out of time. Uh, I've really loved um, our, our interview so far, but um, I've got three kind of rapid fire questions. I want quick, uh, you know, gut answers just to you know kind of wrap this up. Um, Alright, so leading expeditions are expensive. We've established that. You were saying that uh, it's around 20 grand per person and I'm, uh, I'm sure that you've had to dig deeper than that to cover some other, um, you know, of the intangibles. So when you bring somebody on an expedition, do you think it's better for the team to have them pay their own way or is it better to fundraise as a team so people can come on for free?
1: I think it's better for them to pay uh, their own way. Uh, at least part of their own way. I would love to be able to raise sufficient funds that I could subsidize that by maybe 50%, but it's been very difficult to do so. Uh, The reason I believe that it's important for the women to, to fundraise fundraise and or pay for at least part of their way is that they are they have they've bought into the project then and I want the women to be working in, in a volunteer capacity because this is a volunteer effort I want them to be shoulder right. to shoulder with me raising money not only for their activities but bringing corporate sponsors to the expedition because when someone approaches me and says I want to be part of your team I say that's great and tell me you know what you'd like to do on the expedition and what you can bring to the expedition in terms of not only your expertise but funding because so I, I, I want them to buy in and be part of it and understand that it's a really expensive undertaking and it's a team effort to raise all the money. So the women are coming in, raising their funds, but they're also asked to come in with corporate sponsorship as well uh, for the broader expedition that will assist us.
0: Well, that's great. Uh, okay. What is your uh, mantra as it relates to expeditions and exploration?
1: My mantra... Well, I, I would say that the sky's the limit. I, I, we can do anything uh, if we put our minds to it. It's just a lot of hard work. And many people fundraise for, you know, three to five years to, before they go on an expedition. And we've been going every two years. The cycle is tight. And I think that it, it's, it's just uh, lean in, do the work, and uh, you'll get to your end objective. But it, it's a business. You need a business plan because there's a lot of money uh, at stake, especially if we're chartering boats hugely expensive. So, Mm -hmm. um, there has to be uh, a business plan behind the expedition. And I believe that the object, the mission and vision need to be clearly articulated. And, uh, the reason that partners or sponsors or donors are going to, to, to support an expedition and the team members individually, potentially is because it's clearly articulated what the mission and the vision and the end product is and and what's in it for those sponsors. So I, I view it, really unfortunately as, as, as business it's uh, companies are not going to support us unless we've got a sound business plan and all of those um, achievements are, are laid out.
0: Well, I can appreciate that for something as expensive as you, you guys are doing. Mm -hmm. Okay. And you know, finally, where can our listeners go to learn more about what you guys are doing? uh, Potentially uh, offer uh, some funding support or even if they've got the skill set uh, addition to be part of uh, a future expedition with the Sedna Epic.
1: Absolutely. Um, our website is sednaepic.com and sedna com, all one word. And uh, on that website, there's actually a support button. Support Sedna, support the women of Sedna, support uh, the expedition in general. And once you go to sednaepic.com, you will see the links to all of our um, social media pages, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. Uh, You'll be able to see all the latest news on our uh, social media channels, as well as read some of our blogs and all the biographies of the team members and the advisors are on the website. So you can take a look at uh, who's currently in the team and the previous expeditions are there and there's lots of video footage of the things we've been discussing. So I think sednaepic.com and it will all unfold from there.
0: Excellent. Well, Susan, it's been a great pleasure uh, catching up with you and learning a little bit more about uh, the projects. And, you know, for me, it's really fascinating how you started with one concept, which was, we're going to be the first to snorkel uh, the Northwest Passage, and how that's morphed and changed over time. And, you know, you've had to adapt your leadership style and, and, you know, kind of outcome and goals, but the project still continues. And, you know, I'd say it sounds like it's even thriving uh, more than just simply banging off a first, which, you know, they, they, they go in the Guinness Book of World Records or something like that and kind of get forgotten. But now, like you had said earlier, you've got a legacy uh, of education and enrichment that you're able to live behind and build on, which I think is a lot more important overall. And, and that's something that um, we tend to overlook. I know I certainly have uh, for, for expeditions in the past. Uh, it's more about, you know, completing this project as opposed to what good are we doing in the region and what's the legacy. So I commend you for that.
1: Thank you very much, Simon. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. And, uh, you know, if women are interested in in applying for or learning more about the expedition, please uh, send us an email. Uh, The email contact is on the website as well. I'd love to hear from them.
0: Awesome. Well, everyone, thank you uh, so much for listening. Uh, I really enjoyed this podcast and we appreciate your support. And speaking of support, couldn't do this without our major sponsors, Merrill farm to feed stoked oats. So thanks again for listening to another episode of the Adventure Science Podcast. If you want to learn more about adventure science, visit us at www.adventurescience.com and again if you're interested in the Sedna Epic Expedition Susan's laid out all the contact information there and you can visit them online to learn more and you know if you're up for it apply or at least support them for a future project thanks again everyone and uh, stay tuned in we've got more episodes coming up soon